Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we explore the deep connection between housing and opportunity across the nation with experts from various sectors, from health to education, to racial equity, to climate, and much more. My name is Chantel Wilkinson. I am the campaign manager of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. The campaign is about bringing voices into housing advocacy that are not typical housing advocates and using these new partners to advance federal affordable housing policy. This campaign has come together at a critical moment with housing advocates recognizing the crisis has reached enormous heights and advocates and leaders in other sectors recognizing that fixing the housing crisis is instrumental to their own goals and priorities. Housing has an impact on our health. Housing has an impact on our education. Housing has an impact on our access to nutritious foods. Housing has played a major role in structural racism and discrimination, and we can go on and on. Our podcast episodes aim to deepen our understanding of housing and its spillover impacts, explore the substantial research out there, and we are bringing in the experts to chat about it. So thank you for joining us today and let's get into this episode. Hello everyone and welcome back to another Opportunity Starts at Home podcast episode. Today we will be continuing our series on fair housing and without further ado, I'm going to kick it off into our discussion and if you missed the first one, be sure to check out episode 33. Let's get into it. We're continuing our recent series of discussions focusing on fair housing. And today we're joined by three distinguished guests who collaborated on a fascinating recent paper about racial discrimination in the rental housing market. They also have made previous to that substantive contributions to the growing literature on housing discrimination and low-income housing policy more broadly. First, we have Dr. Eva Rosen. She's an assistant professor at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. Dr. Rosen received her PhD from Harvard University in sociology and social policy. She is interested in social inequality in the urban context. In particular, she studies poverty and American housing policy. Her research interests include urban sociology, poverty and inequality, race and ethnicity, housing, ethnography, social policy, crime, and culture. Dr. Philip Garboden is the HCRC Professor in Affordable Housing Economics, Policy, and Planning at the University of Hawaii Manoa and a visiting scholar at the Russell Sage Foundation. Dr. Garboden received his PhD in sociology from the Johns Hopkins University. His work examines how the decisions of supply-side actors, such as landlords, tenants, and developers, are shaped by domestic housing policies and how these decisions impact the lives of poor tenants. He's a mixed methods researcher, leveraging statistical analysis, ethnography, and in-depth interviewing. Dr. Jennifer Acasi-Leon is a senior policy and advocacy manager at Community Change Action. Dr. Acasi-Leon received her PhD in sociology from Loyola University, Chicago. She is a community-engaged scholar who studies local social movements, race, gender, and class, and urban inequality. At Community Change, Dr. Casuleon draws from research to inform policy solutions to race and gender inequities within intersecting issue areas, including housing. So thank you all for joining us. Thanks so much for having us today. Great. So first, uh, just as a way of background, I'd love to briefly hear from each of you about your path to conducting academic research and your interest in uh, research on housing policy specifically. 
Yeah, so I can start. So when I first started studying issues around social inequality, specifically through the lens of sociology, it just seemed like a lot of people weren't actually talking about housing. And yet housing matters so much for so many of the social outcomes we care about, right? For things like poverty, health, joblessness, access to stable housing is really at the root of a lot of this stuff. But, you know, there is no right to housing in this country. And of course, we have a huge affordable housing crisis that's really only worsened with the pandemic. And in fact, it's really hard to call it a crisis, right? When as a country, we've just never really committed to making sure to provide safe, affordable housing for everyone. And so that's a big part of what motivated me to study housing. And in particular, to think about how housing policy, and in particular, the lack of it in many cases, or housing policy, right, that sometimes does more harm than good, how it really shapes the world that we live in. So my research really began in Baltimore, studying uh, one of our largest tenant-based housing subsidy programs, the um, Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program, and trying to understand how people use vouchers in a city like Baltimore and also across the country. And from there, coming at it from sort of that tenant side, I started to realize how important landlords were in shaping the housing landscape for renters. And, and in the last few years, have really shifted my focus to studying housing providers and how, how they shape the affordable housing market. All right, I can, I can jump in next. Um, I think this is always an interesting question for me to answer, because at least my story doesn't really start with housing or even even academic research, it really starts with questions about how to develop a just society that allows everyone a basic level of well-being and unobscured opportunities. And housing is really just a piece of that puzzle that I believe is most essential. And empirical research is just the arena where I felt I had the greatest uh, comparative advantage uh, in terms of making a contribution. Um, within, within research, like Eva, I've, all, I've always felt that we tend to focus our efforts on understanding the behaviors of vulnerable groups, right? So sort of why do poor people do this or that? Why do they make the decisions they make? Uh, but we actually pay surprisingly little attention to the individuals who actually shape the opportunities and constraints that low-income families experience. Uh, so that's why I've tended to focus my work looking at landlords, developers, lenders, groups like that. Thank you for this question. So for me, an overarching theme in my work has been in understanding how groups, like groups that Phil just mentioned, that are marginalized in intersecting ways, people who are economically marginalized or marginalized because of their race or class or what zip code they live in. And my work has also been interested in looking at how everyday people contest that marginalization at the grassroots. And so most of this research has been focused on the community organizing of Black and Latina mothers. And what I find is that housing access affects all aspects of their lives, their families, their communities, including their organizing. And so research on housing is incredibly important and it must include multiple perspectives, including the perspectives of, of landlords. And so some of the work that I've done has focused on tenants the intersecting barriers that they face in accessing housing, the emotional toll that it takes on tenants having to convince landlords to rent to them. For instance, here I'm speaking of research I conducted with Peter Rosenblatt in Milwaukee. And so I think it's important as this paper that we're talking about today shows to hear from the suppliers of that housing, from landlords. How are they making decisions about who to rent to? How does their capacity affect these decisions? And 
also what are the explicit and implicit biases that come into play within these processes? And so that's part of what this paper digs into. Great. So thanks to each of you for sharing that. I think I've always find it very interesting to hear how researchers come to their field and how that th those background experiences shape the, the research that they do. Before we talk about this specific article, and that's going to be the, the focus of our discussion today, I want to talk about the, the type of research that you do. So when we think about housing policy, many papers, whether they're economic papers or quantitative sociology papers, conduct statistical analysis to try to get estimates of a certain trend, say racial discrimination in housing. The type of research that uh, each of you do, um, at least in some form, kind of complements that quantitative approach with a mixed methods approach. So I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about that approach, the types of methodologies you use, and how you think about its value for shaping policy change and, and creating new knowledge in the field. I think that's a great, great question. And, and one of the things that we heard a lot when we were starting on this research quite, quite a while ago was that no landlords would be willing to talk to us, right? That they, would, they wouldn't trust us, that they wouldn't have the time to speak with us, and, uh, and that they wouldn't care about this sort of study. So, so doing sort of qualitative narrative research on landlords, uh, we, we were told by, by, by many well-meaning colleagues, was, was, was nearly impossible. And I think that that assumption means that is that we tend to look at supply side behaviors pretty much purely from a quantitative perspective, right? So how are, how are various public policies impacting behavior? How do financial implications shape landlord behavior? Um, and that's obviously incredibly important and, and we've all done that work as well. But our the goal I think of good policy development is always to have a blend of qualitative and quantitative insights that, that work together in an iterative way, both explaining how people behave, but also why they behave in that way. And I think that's how you get public policies that are, are, are really effective. And so our hope with this work is to bring some of that balance back into how we understand landlords and real estate investors, and especially around issues of discrimination, right? We can identify discrimination quantitatively, we can identify the consequences of discrimination quantitatively. But in order to change it, we really need to understand what it looks like and, and why it's happening. Yeah, thanks for that, Phil. You know, although we started working on this research before my current position working in policy and advocacy, I was really inspired to continue this work because I see the power of grassroots action and the organizers and the leaders that I interact with, those that live in subsidized housing or in public housing, know the findings of this research before they even read any article. And that's because they've lived it. Their families and other people they know and care about have experienced it. And so uh, having this work published and shared with housing stakeholders more widely helps to elevate their stories and continues the really important conversation about the need to not only end housing discrimination and to create more affordable housing, but to also ensure that everyone has enough to pay rent and other essential bills, and that the people at the fore of policy change are people with lived experience, and that their voices are heard in any policy making table. And so I 100% believe that sharing stories are what move people to action. And uh, this is what drives policy change. And so this moves us from helping us to change the narrative from being very individualistic, right? It's your fault you can't find housing. It's your fault your credit score is low or you were evicted towards looking at the structural impediments of access to housing 
And so, you know, why is it that everyone in this country doesn't have safe and accessible and affordable housing? And so I believe our conversation needs to be centered around what we need to do in order to ensure that every person has a safe place to call home. Wonderful. And I, I think this article uh, is a great example of some of those uh, themes that that uh, both of you mentioned. So let's let's dive in there. It's uh, titled Racial Discrimination in Housing, How Landlords Use Algorithms and Home Visits to Screen Tenants. So um, Dr. Rosen, let's start with you. What was the inspiration behind this article? Yeah, so, you know, in this area of research, landlords and really supply side actors more broadly are just incredibly understudied. And I think this actually intersects with with your previous question in the sense that, you know, I'm often in conversations with my colleagues at, at a policy school around how qualitative work specifically can actually contribute to our understanding of the social world and in particular uh, to our understanding and um, how we think about public policy, right? Like what, what can qualitative research tell us that, that we can trust, that we can act on, right? And of course, if we only study things in the world that are quantifiable or we only study them in a, in a sort of numbers-oriented way, I think we actually miss big parts of the social world. And this is one of those areas when we started, when we first started doing this kind of work, there was not a ton of information about how supply side actors were actually operating. And so there was just this big black hole, right? And so you can't, you can't put something in your model if you don't even know how it works or how it, how it comes into play with the other things you're studying. So I think landlords have been generally assumed to just be sort of uh, incentivized by the market to operate according to market logics, right? They're business owners, they're profit motivated. And of course that is true, but of course they're also human beings. Um, and so like everyone else, they're not always rational actors, right? They may act on emotion. They may act based on prejudice, based on racism. In fact, they often do. And so in reality, landlords are not just responding to market conditions. They're doing something more. And at the same time, they're making these incredibly important decisions about who to rent to, in which properties, when and if to evict, right? And so we really do have to understand the logics by which they're operating if they're not simply motivated by, by sort of perfectly rational action. So we, we sort of looked at the literature and of course we know from this long line of what we call audit studies and many of these are designed by HUD and places like the Urban Institute to try to measure and understand housing discrimination. And so we know from this literature on housing discrimination that, of course, it happens, that it happens along racial lines, that it's diminished to some degree over time, but it still has really persisted as well. And most of this research focuses on trying to understand what happens when, for example, you have a black applicant and a white applicant who are on paper otherwise identical, right? They go to the same apartment. And again and again, these audit studies show that tenants of color are shown fewer apartments, they're accepted less frequently, they're even charged more money when they are successful at renting. And so we really wanted to understand what was behind this, right? How do landlords actually think about race? What does it mean to them when they're evaluating a tenant? And how does their understanding of a tenant's race shape their screening practices and their decisions around who to rent to? And when we compare that with the limitations of an audit study, right, an audit study is defining race as this sort of objective fact about a person as if 
their skin color is the only person that really defines a person's race. But of course, we know from decades of important work in sociology that race is so much more than that, that it interacts with other things about a person, right? Their gender identity, their class and educational background. Um, and of course, this is what we call intersectionality, which becomes a big focus of our paper. And so since landlords are these incredibly important decision makers, gatekeepers really, we actually wanted to know how they think about the intersection of these different components of a potential tenant's identity and their presentation. And lastly, we wanted to understand how discrimination works in settings where landlords weren't necessarily choosing between a Black tenant and a white tenant in the way that they are in audit studies. And this is because most housing markets in the country are already segregated, right? So landlords may have a pool of prospective tenants that's already mostly folks from one racial background or another. And of course, race still matters in those decisions, but um, not in the way that we might typically think about it in an audit study. And so we really wanted to dig deep and sort of pull the curtain back and figure out more about how landlords were actually thinking about these kinds of decisions. Great. So let's talk about how you actually did that. Dr. Garboden, can you tell us a little bit about the methodological approach to this project? So what data did you gather and how did you collect and analyze it? Yeah, so the research actually started uh, with a project looking directly at questions about housing vouchers. And this was funded by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, along with a bunch of other, other folks. And it was a, a really larger team of a bunch of amazing people, Stephanie DeLuca, Catherine Eden, Meredith Reef, and, and many, other, many other field workers. But broadly, I think we came into this research with the idea that housing markets were fundamentally relational. Uh, when it comes to housing, I think sometimes sociologists say that when, they, when sociologists or other actors say structure, Structure, uh, they often just mean landlords, right? But I think that's an unbalanced view. Structure is what defines the relationship between landlords and tenants. But both sides of housing represent a heterogeneous group of people. So our goal was to get to landlords and really, really work to understand them as human actors uh, in, in the housing market. So we picked four cities, uh, Baltimore, Maryland, Cleveland, Ohio, Washington, DC, and Dallas, Texas. And that was designed to really capture a pretty wide range of housing markets across the country. We have our sort of typical Rust Belt cities in there, but we also tried to talk to different, different types of cities, you know, fast growing, high rent cities like DC and, and, the, and some belt cities like Dallas that are, are often absent in our, in our sociological and, and other policy understandings. And then within each of those cities, we endeavored to speak to as wide a range of landlords and property owners as possible. So we, we scraped rental listings, marketing tenants, marketing, sorry, marketing units to voucher holders, marketing units denying voucher holders. We stratified those by the types of neighborhoods the units were in. And we our goal was to capture landlords with as broad a brush as possible in each of these markets. And we honestly approached the landlords the same way that sociologists have been approaching tenants for decades, right? Using in-depth, semi-structured interviews uh, that talked about all aspects of their business, uh, but also their personal histories and everything that defined how they chose to manage, screen, and evict tenants. And it's really important when you do this kind of work, not just to sort of directly approach the answer to the question that you want, but to really understand each case holistically, right? To be able to embed the types of stories that a respondent is telling within the context of who that respondent is, what decisions they've made in their career, you know, who they are as a in terms of their demographic identity, their economic identity, all manner of that. So that's that's how we how we approach this research. And so as you're conducting this research in, in the paper, you kind of describe this big pool of landlords and you split them up into two types. So there's professionalized and well-resourced landlords, and then there's smaller scale landlords. 
And what you find is that they actually approach their role very differently, depending on which group they're in. So Dr. Rose, can you tell me a little bit more about these two groups of landlords and what distinguishes them from each other? Yeah, for sure. And I'll I'll start with a point of commonality between the two, which is that landlords really of all types are trying to find what they call sort of the good tenant, right? The, the ideal tenant that might fill any particular unit that they have. And, and, and for many landlords, that's going to depend on where the property is located, what kind of amenities it has, and also who they think they can realistically attract. But the things that universally make a tenant good are paying rent on time, right? Not causing the landlords any extra headaches. And what's important is that these traits, right, of paying rent on time, of being a a good tenant, an easy tenant, these are fundamentally unobservable to the landlord at the beginning of the screening process, right? You can't actually know for sure whether a tenant is going to pay their rent on time. And so what do landlords do? Well, they end up relying on these proxies, these sort of signals or signs or checks that they use to sort of guess whether or not they think a tenant is going to behave in the way that they want them to do. And so what we found is that this is where it really really depends on landlord size. Um, So the approaches tend to be quite different. So we have our smaller landlords, the folks who are more what you would think of as mom and pop landlords, right? They might own just a handful of properties. And these are the people who tell us that they really rely on on what they call gut checks, right? And and they, they really literally use that word, right? It's sort of like when you look a tenant in the eye, what feeling do you get from them, right? And these are really informal judgments about tenants that are based on how they present themselves, how they look, how they talk. And this is really where you see some very obvious kinds of racial stereotypes, but also gendered stereotypes, really all kinds of stereotypes that intersect where poverty and and Black motherhood and and these other kinds of traits come together. And so this is where you hear some of the the more insidious kinds of, of judgments that landlords make. And so landlords in this group do things like home visits. So they'll visit a potential tenant unannounced at their current home to sort of do an informal examination of how neat their house is, um, what kind of what kind of shape the place is in, to try to get a sense of how they think the tenant will then live in their unit. They also do even more egregious things like examine the tenant's kids. They'll check to see how neatly their hair is combed. Uh, a handful of landlords told us they did stuff that they called smell tests, where they actually smelled the kids to see if they were bathed recently, like really egregious stuff. <clears throat> and again, they're doing all of this because they don't think that they can trust the formal things that tenants will report on their applications, like income or credit or other kinds of things. They don't, <clears throat> they either don't think that they can trust it or, you know, they find that well in this pool of tenants across the board, they tend to have low credit, which is to be expected, right? And so they don't find those checks to be particularly useful. On the other hand, we have larger landlords, right? And larger landlords are definitely more likely to use formal checks, things like credit checks, criminal background checks, even um, residential history or specifically eviction history checks, see if the if the tenant's ever been evicted before. <clears throat> and these formal methods sort of seem on the surface a lot better than like a smell test, right? But in actuality, these things are not particularly good predictors of paying rent on time. Even credit checks really aren't going to tell you that much about whether a tenant can actually pay. It's telling you something about their history, right? Their past, but it's not necessarily telling you about something about the future. And on top of that, while these kinds of formal checks may seem better, 
And, and these are, these are of course, to be clear, the ways in which landlords are relying on algorithms, right? So they're often subscribing to third-party software, essentially, that aggregates all of this different tenant data, gives the tenant a score, and actually advises the landlord on whether or not um, it would be a risky tenant to rent to. But of course, these formal checks are going to correlate with categories of historical inequality, right? So relying on these formal algorithms to screen tenants, landlords are actually reproducing inequality rather than disrupting it. Right. I think the article does a really nice job. I think you referred to it as this patina of fairness, where you're using these algorithms that are technically fair, um, but they have uh, very pernicious consequences. The, the other thing I'll mention for listeners, I, there are great anecdotes in the in the paper, some very disheartening, but all of them eye-opening about the way that landlords approach their work. And I think it's a really, it's a great strength in the paper. So I'd encourage listeners to check that out. In terms of the way that these two groups of landlords, their behaviors uh, impact potential tenants, your article describes the term intersectional discrimination. Uh, I think Dr. Rosen, you you mentioned this a little bit earlier in the interview. The article describes intersectional discrimination as a way of understanding the evolution of racial discrimination to the present day. I think in particular in these circumstances when it's not a paired test with a white renter and a black renter, for example. So um, Dr. Cosleon, this question's for you. What is intersectional discrimination? Can you tell us a little bit more about it? And how does it show up in the behavior of landlords when they're evaluating tenants? Sure, so discrimination in our country and housing happens often. And our system, our fair housing system, that we have for reporting discrimination is inadequate at best. Um, Particular, it's more for discrimination that's for protected characteristics, like race, color, religion, disability, family status, for instance. And, And that's problematic. In our research, we find that the strategies that landlords use to screen tenants disproportionately affect a certain group, and that's largely women especially Black women and women with children. And so these are the folks that are already experiencing multiple forms of oppression in our society because of the way they look, because of their gender, and because of their socioeconomic position. And so this oppression is intersectional. It can't be neatly parsed out, nor should it be viewed separately has to be viewed simultaneously. And so we suggest that that housing discrimination must also be seen through an intersectional lens. Since tenants are experiencing multiple forms of discrimination at once. So with some tenants, like Black women with children experiencing the most, some are experiencing discrimination because of their race, because their form of payment they're using, because of their previous address. And so we find that sometimes, as Eva mentioned earlier, landlords use algorithms or more informal ways of screening through these unannounced home visits. And so we can see how problematic it is to conduct these invasive home visits and tests and to score tenants based on what they look like or what their kids look like. But also interestingly and horrifically, and more under the surface are algorithms. These are these supposedly objective screening tools that are supposed to predict uh, a tenant's ability to pay. 
And so these take into account income, credit score, rental history, but all of these are also shaped by racial and gendered and class experiences. So even these algorithmic screening tools implicitly have bias in them. And so these markers of rentability happen within our society where women who contribute, might I add, the majority of care work, whose work is undercompensated, who live in a country that does not have universal childcare or guaranteed sick leave, you know, and so our findings of intersectional discrimination really are not surprising because unfortunately, housing is a commodity instead of seen as a basic human need. So again, I'd encourage listeners to check out the paper and, and read these, the findings in full. I think it's a very eye-opening and powerful um, read. I want to shift from the findings to the implications. So what should we do with this, these findings that you've created? So let's talk about landlords in particular. What are the implications of your research for landlords? And in particular, I'm curious about, you know, you, the article describes these pernicious uh, algorithms and then the equally pernicious gut screening measures. So that there are clear problems with both. I'm curious about what you think equitable screening might look like. How could a landlord do the right thing in this in, within the context that they inhabit? Sure. So definitely more protections for tenants to not have to face these invasive screening of home visits, for sure. But more equitable screening would look like not asking about credit scores or previous address or demographic information or even uh, criminal records, which is a barrier for people in accessing housing, especially initially. This is all information that really, as you know, as Phil and Eva have both mentioned, it does not truly predict people's ability to pay rent. And so many of the screening questions that landlords often ask prospective tenants on the surface may seem neutral or harmless, but they're really racially biased given the larger structural inequity that we have in society. And some things, some policy solutions that have been tested and in some cases have grown due to COVID-19 relief money that has been infused into communities. And so some of these things have been creating funds for landlords who uh, sometimes are afraid that their, their units will be destroyed or mistreated. And this is why, you know, they describe doing these discriminatory screening practices against people with vouchers, for instance. And so in some cases, risk mitigation funds have been created. And, um, and this is largely really to ease the minds of landlords. And so I recently had a conversation with a public housing authority in North Carolina, where they created one of these funds using some of the American uh, Rescue Plan or CARES Act funds. I don't remember which one. And they said, you know, they really have not used this fund more than once or twice, but it has tremendously helped to ease the worries of landlords. And so, and this just goes to show again, that often the worries that landlords have with renting to people with a voucher are often based on these mythical narratives about deservingness in terms of, of who's deserving of having tenancy. And so I think the implications are very broad and we we have a specific section in the paper around implications. And so that's it's really important that that this research helps to inform more equitable policy. Great. 
Zooming out from these implications for landlords, and, and uh, you just touched on uh, maybe some of the implications for policymakers. Dr. Rosen, Dr. Gerboden, anything that you would add in terms of what you think policymakers can do here, either around housing discrimination enforcement or low housing, low income housing policy more broadly? Yeah, so, so Jennifer pointed to one of our recommendations, which is, of course, to sort of eliminate the screening techniques that don't serve any other function other than as stand-ins for race, gender, class, right? So things like home visits, smell tests, these are not actually measuring a tenant's ability to pay. Um, and even credit, credit scores really serve only as a crude prox proxy for poverty and racialized exclusion from credit and home mortgages. And so algorithms, when they are used, we think should really focus only on a tenant's expected ability to pay based either on their income or their housing voucher receipt, which should not be a basis for discrimination. But, but zooming out, as, you, as you're asking us to do, I think you know, we certainly need to hold landlords who are using discriminatory practices to account. And there are, there are ways, I think, to, to sort of up our enforcement regime. Um, but at the same time, you know, what we spend a little more time talking about in the paper is, is this larger problem, right? The fact that rental assistance for low-income families in this country is just not sufficient to meet the demand, right? And private landlords are just sort of left holding the bag. So one way in which they attempt to mitigate risk is by using these imperfect and on top of that, racist, sexist, otherwise discriminatory screening tools to really judge tenants' worth. So we, we argue in the paper that if tenants had a true safety net to pay their expenses, including especially housing, this kind of intersectional discrimination that prospective tenants would face could, could really decrease. Um, and in this way, the housing voucher program gives us a little bit of, of a hint, right, in that it, it can provide this economic safety net to tenants. So the fact that it guarantees their ability to pay rent in our research actually reduces some of the intersectional discrimination that they face from landlords. So we need more affordable housing and subsidies um, for those who need them. Housing discrimination so often hinges on these intersectional traits where race, gender, and class meet. So our hope is if that vulnerable renters had more options, they would be less vulnerable to landlord discrimination. I think this is a, a really important in point, um, you know, the first the first order charge, right, is, is to eliminate bias in our screening techniques. And, you know, the second order is to make sure our screening techniques aren't simply reflecting other injustices, you know, whether we're talking about labor market, uh, our, our police system and so forth. But the third the third issue and the and the much stickier one for for housing policymakers is how we deal with the fact that some tenants are accurately predicted to have trouble paying. Right. And I think that's the, the point that Eva is making here is that without a robust social safety net response, right, without intervention to help address these you know, historic inequalities in an affirmative and very active way, we're going to really struggle to solve the bigger problem here just through uh, discrimination legislation and, and, and enforcement, although those things are absolutely first order essential uh, step. In regards to us not having enough vouchers, for instance, I think it's incredibly important that across the country, we pressure our policymakers to make these investments. 
to invest in in housing, in housing that's affordable. And to do this right now is a key opportunity through the influx of money that came through the state and local fiscal recovery funds, $350 billion that went to states, cities, counties, and other jurisdictions across the country. And so um, in addition to that, you know, our federal budget, like where are we investing funds? And if we see the need is in housing, like this is where it needs to go. And so I just wanted to say that I think that it's important absolutely that tenants have enough to pay rent and pay their bills, but it's it's incredibly important as well that we are building more housing and we have enough funds in order to fund these programs that help tenants cover their costs of housing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one, one thing I do want to emphasize, I think, and this goes back to my earlier, the second question about the type of research. I think one reason why the paper and, and then the way you're talking about it right now, you're able to draw such nuanced and um, specific conclusions is because you've really uh, delved into the process. It's not just a you know quantitative estimate. You really have understood how this process works. So I think that's just important to note. I want to pivot uh, in my last question here from focusing on the research that you've already done to research that you'd like to see. So I'm curious, is there any future research either that you're working on or that you would suggest other scholars that are interested in this topic look into um, that could further our understanding of this really important topic? Yeah, um, I think uh, the short answer to that is there's a lot more research to be done here. This paper is really the, you know, the, the last in a series, or probably not the last, but the um, most recent in the series of publications that we've put together over the last four years, uh, that all of us really look at a different aspect of the landlord-tenant relationship, right? So decisions where and where and when to invest, right? Questions of eviction, questions of property management, and now in this paper, um, tenant screening. And our, our next step is really to try to synthesize this line of thinking into a book uh, that Eve and I are working on for Princeton University Press. And the challenge there, of course, is how to take some of these fairly academic ideas about, for example, in this paper, about intersectionality, uh, and pre present them in a way that uh, really resonates with policymakers and has the potential to, to move the needle in the sort of general sense. But I think the sort of idea that this would be a, a culmination or a last work on this topic is, is totally a, a red herring. If we learn anything from the data, it's that these dynamics are incredibly complex and that we really just scratched the surface at this point. And, the, you know, the, the major first most obvious lesson is that there's incredible heterogeneity in how landlords act based on the context in which they're operating, right? So our Dallas landlords and our Baltimore landlords, we didn't have time to talk about it much today, but they're operating within very different policy structures with very different types of tenants. Um, and they themselves are different types of, of people. And all that means is that they we would anticipate that they would respond differently to different policies. So, you know, we're really heartened by what seems like a, sort of a, a, an illumination across the country of different scholars working on different cities, really addressing landlords and property managers directly and trying to understand those issues. And, you know, it is immensely clear, and a few folks, both Eva and, and uh, Jenna brought up this issue of the pandemic. And, and to me, it was really obvious during that period just how much more we need to learn about landlords, right? So we had this vast investment of federal funds designed to preserve housing stability. Um, and we did that obviously through the dual mechanism of a moratorium and a, an unevenly enforced moratorium and a uh, and direct cash assistance to, to tenants and therefore their landlords. And many of the challenges of getting that money 
out um, that we saw early on, although certainly it picked up pace uh, as, as time went on. Many of those challenges were, to me, partially a reflection of how little we understood landlords, right? We didn't have databases on who they were, we didn't have ways of contacting them, and we didn't know what kind of messaging uh, would appeal to them, right? And, and we we all learned very quickly, depending on what city we were, were focused on, how to do that. But to me, that there's a an immense more information that needs to be collected on how the low end, uh, the low cost rental market works and, and how to make it more, more just and, and, and fair for, um, for the tenants who, who, are, who are living in it. Yeah, I would just add that making it more just and more fair would mean that our government's investing in, in sources of housing, in uh, funding housing trust funds, in funding eviction protections and ensuring tenants' rights happen across the board. And also, and looking at housing and access to housing as part of larger issues. So, you know, ending the punishment of people who are experiencing homelessness is, is, an, is, is incredibly tied and as well as issues of wages and, um, and childcare. And so looking at housing as one piece of an interconnection of, of issues, I think is key as well. I'll just add, in addition to these really important frameworks that I think Phil and Jennifer has laid out, have laid out in terms of thinking about some of the areas for, for future work. When I think specifically about this paper, I think about a particular issue that, that also surfaced during the pandemic which is related to, to eviction records. Um, and this is something that I think cities are starting to talk about and think about, certainly here in Washington, DC, this has been on the agenda for the last few years, but it sort of comes full circle with our paper because when we think about the way that eviction records operate in most cities, certainly in Washington, DC, they've been largely publicly available for anyone who wants to access them. And in order for this algorithmic discrimination that we talk about in this paper to function, of course, landlords need access to tenants' previous eviction records. Um, and then that allows them, right, to make different kinds of decisions that further disadvantage tenants. And so I think there's definitely a, a policy conversation to be had in a way that really only just a handful of cities are even starting to engage in around what a previous history of eviction should mean for a tenant's ability to find a home in the future and whether or not we want our policies to further disadvantage tenants, right, who have already seen hardship in the past and whether or not that's something that even makes sense. So certainly I think, you know, there are a lot of conversations around both the benefits of, for example, a national eviction database for researchers to be able to study this problem, but at the same time, better protections for tenants so that this information is not the kind of information that landlords are going to be using to, to make housing decisions moving forward. Great. I think that's a really nice uh, place to wrap up, especially because a lot of the implications and the policy suggestions that came out at the end of the conversation are things that uh, Opportunity Starts at Home yeah, really emphasizes, whether that's the housing trust fund or expansion of the voucher program or uh, eviction assistance for tenants, a variety of these different policies. It's uh, very affirming to hear experts in the field reinforce that. With that, I'll just say thank you to each of you for joining us. This has been a real privilege. Uh, we so appreciate your time and generosity in sharing your expertise with us. And I think our listeners are uh, will really appreciate uh, benefiting from all of your knowledge. So thank you. Thank you so much for having us. It was really great to talk about all this today. Absolutely. Thanks. 
Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a great discussion.